Our call to worship this morning is a responsive uh, reading, so if you can grab your hymnals in the back. It is a responsive reading number 704. I lift my eyes uh, to the hills. Where shall I find help? Help comes only from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. How could he let your foot stumble? How could he, your guardian, sleep? The guardian of Israel never slumbers and never sleeps. The Lord is your guardian, your defense at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will guard you against all evil. He will guard your body and soul. The Lord will guard your going and your coming, now and forevermore. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is taken from Numbers 21, 4 through 9. It's page 144 in your pew Bibles, if you like to follow along. I'll be reading from the New International Version. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The New Testament reading is taken from 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. And it's page 1071 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. The Gospel reading in your Pew Bibles is uh, on page 979, John 3, 12 through 15. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. My heart is full this morning, and there are many, many things going on. Uh, Congratulations on making it here today. Um, 
you are among the elite, the few, the proud, the brave. <laughs> and uh, my congratulations. I absolutely love the rain, and we have needed it for forever. Rain means snow, and so those of you who have been surfing lately might want to consider pulling out the snowboard after all and uh, helping the local Southern California economy up on the slopes. Um, uh, just mindful of some other pieces too. Really good to have Danica and Lance back from college this weekend. Always uh, great to see our kids home from school. Um, just wanted to ask you to be uh, in prayer for St. Janice of Newhall. Um, Janice Hinkle has had surgery this week and is doing well as far as I know, but uh, she, she really doesn't like it when I call her that. But if you knew the many ways in which she reaches out to people and assists people and loves people and helps people, um, you would find the miracle of it and be inclined to call her so yourself. So pray for Janice Sinkle uh, as she recovers. I uh, understand our uh, Janet Peters was in a car accident and is in the hospital, and so pray for her as well. I'm probably missing a host of other things, but these are just some of the pieces uh, swimming in my head. My son is home this weekend, but he's with West Winds and Ocean Airs, and they are doing concert tour, and so are in the South Bay area today. Got to hear them last night at Glendale, Phil Am, and, and that was a joy. So lots of things happening. If I forget, and I'm really good at this, because I, I don't use notes for my sermons, as you've probably picked up. So there's a lot going on up here. And after I'm done delivering all of that, I just sort of go into computer crash mode. Everything just sort of... And so I often forget to bridge to the offering. But today, I'm going to ask our treasurer to spend just a few minutes with me sharing with you some of the good news about how last year came out for us as a congregation in terms of your participation in our tithing program and in our church budget and, and other programs. And we're going to talk just a little bit about what a blessing that comes to all of us when we are responsive to the call of God in that way and when we're faithful to his, his calling for the tithes and the offerings. And, and so we're going to share a little bit of that after my sermon today, if I can remember to call Rick up and to make that bridge. So if I forget, just kind of wave at me and uh, let me know to, to get back on track. I have one other commercial announcement to make, and that is that apparently um, I got so busy with all the creativity of putting together my sermon plans and so forth that I failed to realize last week that have is not, not, I repeat a preposition. That's really not a good thing to put then on the cover when you're doing a series on prepositions. I have it on good authority, however, that up is. Now, I, I may have that one wrong, too. And if I do, um, well, maybe you can take up an offering for a neurological exam or something like that uh, may be in order. An extended retreat, I, I don't know, something. Um, um, 
So anyway, my apologies to that. I also want to address just something again publicly because we each come to this worship and to this time and season and service from a different place philosophically, socially, spiritually, in terms of our experiences and journeys. We come to this as God's children with much in common, but we come from different experience sets and different concerns. And so I just want to spell out a couple of things again publicly in, in response to a caution that came to me last week. And I don't want to overreact to any of that because it was, it was kindly given, but I just want to be clear going forward uh, what I'm thinking, and, and you can help me uh, sort of work that together as we journey uh, through the season together. First, I grew up Seventh-day Adventist. My personal background is coming from a family of practicing faith. My father was a physician, my mother a homemaker. They were the first full generation of each of their families. It was their parents who had accepted uh, Christ in in, in the context of the Advent message and had become Seventh-day Adventists. And in point of fact, my mother's father never was. He was actually a Mason, never a, a, a mainline Christian. So I come at, at, at my theology and experience as a third-generation Adventist. And one of the pieces that um, I've grown up with and am very aware of is our uh, teachings on eschatology and apocalypsis the role of Roman Catholicism in the apostasy of the Christian church. Some of these things were really hammered in. And my personal sort of uh, place of study and and in some instances, I suppose, reactivity or other things to all of this is to say, okay, I know where I sit and where I stand in terms of an Adventist theology and an Adventist direction. But I also see as somebody who's within this tradition, opportunity for a wider exploration of the faith that has gone before. Since the Adventist Church was officially formed in 1863 and there really wasn't much use of the word Advent or Adventist uh, much prior to the very early 1840s, um, we're newcomers on the scene in terms of Christianity. Christianity has been around a very long time and in point of fact, For the first thousand plus years of Christian history, there was only one Christian church. So we owe a great deal historically and theologically to that one Christian church. I have to acknowledge then that some of you come from other backgrounds. There are some of you who grew up Catholic. And you were taught and and took catechism in the traditions and in the beliefs and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know a number of you have that background. And so when you started studying scripture for yourself and when you listened to the evangelist or whatever particular, uh, did that Bible study with a, a friend of yours, whatever mode it was that you came, when you taught yourself, studied yourself into the church, You began to see a different view of the way scripture operated in people's lives. You had a different view of the way confession worked, the priesthood worked. You adopted a lot of different points of views and you moved from one thing to another. 
By moving from Roman Catholicism to Seventh-day Adventism and Protestantism, you made a huge shift in your life. I commend you. That's a difficult thing to do. So for you, hearing some of the language of the mother church may be uh, scary or a throwback or hearken to something you've rejected, and I want to be sympathetic to that too. Some of you come from other traditions. Maybe those have uh, more of Christian history embedded in them than not. I, I, I can't say. But the journey we're taking through the Lenten season, and yes, I did use that word, the journey we're taking through this Lenten season is reframed in an Adventist context to say, let's be mindful. It's not meant to uh, re-Catholicize us. It's not meant to change us into something we aren't. It's meant for us as a body and as a corporation to journey together toward a deeper understanding of what Christ has done in response to the sin problem and the power and glory of the resurrection. Now, just a quick note on that. I, I sometimes use the word Easter, but I more often use the word Resurrection Sunday. And I do that, I do that because of the, the connections that some people have made uh, and irreversibly connected with the, the, the seasonal piece the fertility pieces and so forth that went with Easter and the amalgamation of pagan Rome and early Christianity and the, and the problems that that poses for us theologically, philosophically, and so forth. I, I come at that from a standpoint that says we all these years later may or may not have uh, attributions tied to symbols. That is to say we may not make a direct connection between some of the older symbols and the new. And in the meantime, because we're Saturday keepers, because we're Sabbath keepers, because we understand the law and the gift of Sabbath in this way, we're usually not in church on Sunday. So Sunday services of resurrection are foreign to us. And Easter or Resurrection Sunday often gets lost. And yet Paul speaks of the the absolute necessity and primacy of the, the resurrection in terms of our theology. He says, if Christ is risen from the dead, then it's possible that we too will participate in a resurrection. But if he's not risen from the dead, then we are fools and to be pitied above all men. Does that sound pretty direct to you? It sounds pretty straight to me. So I'm not highlighting Easter for the sake of bunnies and fertility and for the sake of tying us again to something that we've left as Protestants. I'm tying us to this a little bit liturgically to help us remember how important this event is, what we have to look forward to, and the redemption that's ours and the cost of sin in the process. So if you have any, any sort of concerns about that moving forward, I, I would welcome a, a further dialogue. But I wanted to be clear what my intentions in all of this are and uh, to help you be comfortable with the occasional use of language that's not a part of our tradition. And to remember, if you come from an Adventist tradition, we speak Adventees. Just ask people who aren't part of this tradition and see how well they're doing with the language that we're so accustomed to and how comfortable they are with it. And I think we'll be all right. So enough of the commercial. Um, that was a 20-minute infomercial, and now we have five minutes of regular programming.
And I know you're good with this because you all subscribe to TV and this is the way it works in the real world, right? No, I'm kidding. We'll, we'll have, a, we'll have a, a message too. So coming back to our message then and mindfulness in this great season that, that helps us to sort of count the cost as it were and think about uh, where we are in our journey. We find the core story of the text that was read today happening in the Numbers text. I have that right. Was it the Exodus text? Numbers. Numbers text. Okay, I'm good. My my mind does fail me. I'm getting paranoid. In the Numbers text, there's this story of Israel journeying in the wilderness, and they get tired and fatigued, and they experience what all of us as humans experience, and that is attention deficit disorder. They've forgotten where they're going and why they're going there and who's leading there and the miracles that have brought them to that point. They've forgotten all of the graces and all of the wonders and all of the blessings and all they can think of is how tired they are of sitting on hard rocks, how tired they are of camping, how bad the food is and how very much they want to get on with time in their lives. Anybody ever feel like that? Okay, nobody. That's all right. Again, I've got to really work at helping to relate. Um, something's missing. Um, oh, anyway, so they're journeying, and they're uh, not happy. And they get to these hard places, and the tendency is to run home to mama. They are ready to go back to Egypt. Recall that even though they were slaves, the Israelites had inherited the land of Goshen, which was the Nile Delta, which was the very richest soil and richest area in all of Egypt, lush and beautiful and very fertile. They had, before their captivity, uh, grown in numbers and their flocks and herds had multiplied and they were doing very well there. And even as slaves, they were apparently uh, able to eat. They were treated uh, to food that they considered far superior to what they were getting in the desert. And so in the context of their journey from enslavement and captivity to freedom and promise, in their journey from this place where they had been owners but became slaves, disowned from the land, to a land promised them again, in the process of deliverance, they're in the midst of deliverance and their experience of it is the doldrums and boredom and frustration and dissatisfaction. The food is no good. Sounds like boarding academy to me. (laughs) Exactly like boarding academy, to be precise. I lost weight at boarding academy. Maybe I should go back, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, they complain about the leadership. They complain that God has brought them out and Moses has brought them out in the wilderness to do nothing but die. And they are, they are really experiencing dissettlement and ingratitude. God is not pleased. And the snakes that enter the camp are attributed to his judgment. Many Israelites are bitten. People begin to talk and say, what have we done? They realize that their attitude is a problem and that they've gotten stuck in their minds and on the journey and that they have eschewed the salvation that has come to them. That this movement from slavery to freedom, from 
the harsh terms of their lives in Egypt to the promises of a land flowing with milk and honey, they, they've, they've been reminded that they weren't willing to deal with the hardships of that journey. And as they're bitten, they start to panic and think and remember and repent. Well, the story is very plain as it was read to you. They go to Moses. We have sinned against you and against God. Moses goes to God and prays to God and says, what should be done? God instructs Moses to erect a bronze serpent that anybody who looks at that serpent would find life having been bit. He's instructed to lift up a serpent on a pole. You've seen that symbol. It's the symbol of the medical community today. A kind of cross-like pole with a serpent entwined on it. It's part of the insignia of the medical corps in any kind of uh, armed services branch. And this is the snake that saves. So this is kind of our core story today because we're reminded of the bite that comes to us in sin and the lethality, lethalness of that bite. There's an antecedent story to this in Genesis, isn't there? Of a very clever incarnation of a serpent. Lucifer has been cast from heaven along with those who were sympathetic to him. The war has been fought there and um, as described, is cast to the earth takes on a very clever disguise in the form of a brilliant and beautiful serpent who speaks. As I say in my pastor's letter, I don't have a very um, developed zoology of uh, herpetology before the fall. Uh, I don't have a great deal of knowledge about what a pre-fall snake did or looked like. But the curse implies that there was a demotion that from the time of this deception forward, snakes would crawl on their bellies and eat dust. Vermin, basically. So, uh, that said, we, we have this very clever serpent who stands in the garden and I don't, I don't really want to... Um, I don't want to be sacrilegious in any way here, but I don't, I don't know God's parenting experience. I do know that he creates Adam and Eve and tells them, this you can do and this you can't do. And I do know that an experienced parent knows that the minute you tell a child what they can't do, what is the first thing that they want to do? I'm listening. They want to do what you told them not to do. So I, I, I can't speculate as to uh, how this really, really happened, but God tells them not to do it, and one of the first things we have recorded that they do is they, they head to the tree. And when they get there, they're bedazzled. Have you ever been bedazzled? Beguiled? Yeah, I bet you have. You just don't want to admit it. Or you're waiting to go home and look up those words before you use them in Pictionary or Dictionary or Scrabble. 
the snake was bedazzling. And they look with great curiosity. There's no fear at this point in time. There's no reason for any fear. And this magnificent creature speaks. That would get my attention. And it offers an alternative view that the God who created me may have an agenda that's not what I thought. Maybe trying to keep me from something that's valuable or good. After all, wouldn't you want your eyes opened? Wouldn't you want your senses unclogged? Wouldn't you want to be able to see and know? Isn't it very tempting to be like the one who made us? Isn't that the core of our downfall? Is that we forget our creatureliness? You will not die, the serpent says. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a deal. Eat the quince, the apple, whatever it was. And voila, a whole new me. A whole new reality. They both eat. And they both come to a point of self-consciousness which we don't see ever recorded before that time. And in self-consciousness, their eyes have been opened and they do see a whole different reality. And they hide. They're no longer comfortable in the new reality. There's a sense of exposure, a sense of vulnerability, a sense of fear. You know the story. Christ walks in the garden, God walks in the garden and calls to them and says, why did you hide from me, knowing, knowing why they hid? He covers their nakedness and he dare, makes some declarations, cursing the serpent and promising that one day there would be a seed of Eve's offspring that would crush that serpent's head but bruise its heel. That story's been unfolding for us ever since. For when Christ came, we understand that as the second Adam, if you will, well, you can read it in Romans 5, can't you? Right about Romans 5.15. He comes as a new Adam, as it were, only this time without a fall. He stands as the new prince of the earth, having wrested that title from Satan, who wrested it from Adam. He's brought a grace which is greater than the sin that's committed. But it costs him his life. Indeed, his heel is crushed, bruised. But he bruises the serpent's head. A lethal blow is dealt. Well, fast forward. Our Corinthians text says, if I be lifted up, 
I will draw all men to myself. There are two kinds of lifted up here. The first lifting up is ugly and brutal. The first lifting up is barbaric and cruel. The first lifting up is the crucifixion of an innocent man. The taking of a life. The first lifting up is a man on a pole. And if any will look at him, they will live. For you see, even in that moment, one turns to him and says, remember me in paradise. If I be lifted up, I will draw all to me. And then there's the lifting up that we do in our living and in our believing, in our praising and in our worship. We lift up the Christ crucified. The anathema. The stumbling block. We lift up the Christ crucified declaring that in this act of sacrificial presence, being God with us, enduring the suffering of humanity, taking on the sin of humanity and paying the ransom, the devil's ransom, as he's lifted up, if we will lift him up in word in act, in thought, in deed. If we will lift him up in song and worship and in our ethics and in our justice and in our kindnesses, he'll draw everybody to himself. The promise has dual fulfillment. And so in the season of mindfulness, let's lift him up. Not for crucifixion, but as the one upon whom we may look that indeed we might all live. For as the bronze serpent was the cure in the wilderness on a journey from enslavement to freedom, so the cross is what we must look at to live in our journey from enslavement to sin to the freedom that comes in the world made new. It's the same journey. Different cross. Today, our mindfulness is on the preposition up. And let's not fail to lift up our Creator, Redeemer, Savior, Lord, Christ, God, the God of Jesus Christ, who saved us, whose heel was crushed but it puts to the end to the deception 
that has left us all naked and afraid. Rick, why don't you come up and talk to us about the blessings that are ours. Two thousand eleven was a very good year for Santa Clarita. God continues to bless us here, and we want to thank all of you for your tithes and offerings last year and in the future. Two thousand eleven, our tithe offerings were two hundred forty-four thousand dollars. That was an increase of sixteen percent over last year, or the previous year, two thousand ten. Amen. That is very good. Most of you know that our tithe offerings are forwarded to the Southern California Conference to support their ministries. Tithe offerings do not support the church here at Santa Clarita. It is our giving to church budget that supports the local church. Church budget includes things like our electric and gas and our local ministries like Sabbath school, uh, children's ministries, and women's ministries, to name a few. There are other ministries that are not included in the church budget. These include uh, the scholarship fund and the children's ministries. These offerings you see in the church bulletin financial section every week. Other uh, ministries that need your support are the Shepherd's Fund, Things like Vacation Bible School, Family Promise, Pathfinders, Adventures, and Prison Bible Ministry. But our major ministry here in Santa Clarita is children's ministry. That is why we uh, ask for special gifts to this ministry. And it's these gifts that are reported uh, weekly in the church financial section of the bulletin. With that... Uh, brief overview, I'd like to let you know that giving to church budget in 2011 was $130,800. $130, that was up 22% over 2010. A very good year. Gifts to children's ministry program was $16,000, which was also very good. Our church budget expenses were $138,700. So if you do the math, we had a surplus of $8,000 last year, which will be uh, used to help us in 2012. I hope that wasn't too confusing. Which right on the point. Um, okay. We bring you this information because normally we would hope to share with all of you in a business meeting context, but that doesn't seem to be uh, working in terms of your schedules and, and your lives. And I felt that spiritually it was important information. Um, I, I too want to thank you. We had a really uh, blessed year last year. And this after several years of decline in all of these areas. Mm -hmm. So it was nice to see the trend reversing. The tithes uh, support ministry. Um, they do support the presence of a pastor here, for example. And our evangelism funds and a few other things that come to us, uh, such as the reversion for our building project. But what 
Rick said is correct. The tithes are not the way in which the local church is supported. That comes through budget. And that's an ongoing process that we want to make all of you aware of as, as we make our gifts and plans in the coming year. That we be generous in returning the Lord's tithes and with our local church in budget. Thank you so much, Rick. Will the deacons please collect our offering at this time? And so, Lord, as you are lifted up, we are drawn to you. And as we lift you up, may you draw all people that they may know the living God who loves, creates, sustains, saves, redeems. In Christ's name, amen.